Part of being an image bearer means that our lives belong to God and our purpose is to use all of our powers to, to advance God's purposes in the world. Included in advancing God's purposes in the world is to protect and nurture every other human's ability to use their powers to serve God's purposes. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. If you've been enjoying the podcast, would you take a minute and log on to your favorite podcast platform, rate us, and leave us a review. It would be a tremendous help, and it allows others to find us more easily. When does life begin? A question that's been hotly debated for at least the last 50 years as society wrestles with the spiritual, ethical, and legal challenges surrounding abortion. In the past few weeks, we've heard news of a possible overturn of Roe v. Wade. What does this mean? Today, I welcome back Dr. Bill Davis to discuss the value of life, the biblical perception of family versus the Western perception of family and the impact of church and government involvement on this issue. Dr. Bill Davis is a professor of philosophy at Covenant College and an adjunct professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. He is an elder in the Presbyterian Church. He's a deep and compassionate minister of the gospel and a guest that we are always honored to have. Our hope is that this episode will bring clarity of conviction to this much-debated topic, while at the same time stirring mercy, patience, and understanding for our friends and neighbors. Now, on to our candid conversation. Well, for 50-some-odd years, uh, abortion has been legal in the United States of America, uh, we think particularly of the ruling of Roe versus Wade, but also Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in recent days, we've seen a draft released, uh, a little bit underhandedly released to the general public, that there's an attempt by the Supreme Court to overturn those rulings. And there is quite a lot of volatility around this issue, the abortion issue, the life issue of the unborn. And uh, we've seen protests in the streets and at the Capitol, and um, it's quite a complex issue in some ways and a simple issue in some ways. And uh, to help us thread this needle in some capacities, as we think biblically, philosophically, ethically, I wanted to invite my former seminary professor, Dr. Bill Davis, who's uh, becoming quite a regular on Candid Conversations to come and share wisdom with us to think about these uh, topics uh, from those perspectives. And so, Dr. Bill Davis, thank you so much for returning back to Candid Conversations. Great to be here, Jonathan. Well, Dr. Davis, uh, help us think about this issue helpfully. And I think it's worth pointing out, you and I are both abundantly aware that we are men having a conversation on an issue that deals mostly with women. And so it's worth pointing that out. But we're also talking about what God's word says. And you and I both know countless women who are in agreement with our position and uh, would be happy to defend it, of course. And in fact, uh, our hope is to have several 
guests over the next couple of weeks to talk about this issue. And some of them will be women who have uh, gone through abortion, perhaps even some who were to be aborted, but parents chose life. Um, those are sometimes the most vocal voices and loudest voices and, and worth listening to because they can say, I am grateful that my parents chose life. But all that to say that uh, we, you and I are aware of our position here, but it's still a conversation that is absolutely worth having uh, and thinking through together. So if you know your uh, introduction on this, as we consider uh, the sort of biblical framework of life, unborn life to be specific, where your positions on this, where you sort of laying your groundwork. Thank you, Jonathan. I think while it's easy to imagine that neither you or, nor I would be trusted to say what the scriptures say about protecting unborn children who are not yet born, because we're never going to have to turn our lives over for nine months to have that realized. Right. Um, we all go to the scriptures seeking to have the Holy Spirit illumine our reading of it. And so I take great comfort in having so many Christian women who see the very same thing I'm going to describe here when they look at what the Bible says about God's valuing of human life in general, but then also about the lives of unborn children. It'd be nice if there was a single passage that just said, if you've thought about ending the life of an unborn child, don't. God hates that. That would be useful. Uh, I think part of the reason that the Bible doesn't have a verse like that is because it hasn't been until just the last hundred years, maybe, in the West, mm -hmm. that anyone thought that an unborn child was a burden. Mm -hmm. The children that you had were the future. The children that were coming were a great blessing. Everything in Scripture that mentions children that you have and children that you might have, see them as a blessing, both because if you're an Israelite, woman, a child you're carrying might be the Messiah, right. uh, but everyone treats children as an unmixed blessing, even though to both fathers and mothers, but typically more to mothers, mm. they take a fair amount of work. And it isn't like you can go on with your life just being about you when you're carrying a child or raising a child. Mm. But if we go to the scriptures and we say, what is God's revealed will with regards to protecting the lives of unborn people. What the Bible says clearly is that God values all human life. He values it so much, it's either infinitely valuable or maybe infinitely would go too far because we are only creatures. But humans are the most valuable things in all of creation. Yeah, They are set apart to bear the image of God, to have the task of being fruitful and multiplying and exercising dominion. That's what it means to be an image bearer. God tells Noah after they get out of the ark that if you, if you take a human life, the appropriate punishment is for you to lose yours. Yeah. And so... And also restates, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Right. That's part of fulfilling the task that we were given by God. And in Psalm 8, it says about humans that we've been for a little while lower, a little while lower than the angels. So we're talking about very, very valuable things to God, human lives. And then we can start asking, okay, so what counts as a human life? There's no question that adults and 
children who are born are included among those who are have this kind of spectacular value in God's economy. And what the, the question of, of abortion raises is whether or not that extends to children who are not yet born. And I'm just going to refer to them as children because the end of this argument is going to be their children. Right. <laughs> they're not fetuses. They're not lumps of protoplasm. They're not um, a part of the woman's body until it can, the whatever's there can survive on its own. The end of the argument is going to be their, uh, that they are children. And so I'm going to say that along the way because I don't think it's in suspense. But I think you can run the analysis saying, suppose I don't know. And then you just have a placeholder, you know, X is going to stand for whatever this thing is that is growing in a pregnant woman's womb, <laughs> eventually to be called a child. So you, I think if you ran it exactly the same way, you'd end up with their children. So I'm going to just take that for granted. It's also the case that because we are made in God's image and put here to carry out God's purposes in the world, that the scriptures also assume that our lives don't belong to us. Mm. You are not your own. Part of being an image bearer means that our lives belong to God and our purpose is to use all of our powers to, to advance God's purposes in the world. Mm. Included in advancing God's purposes in the world is to protect and nurture every other human's ability to use their powers to serve God's purposes. And so that's something to hold in mind as we ask what exactly is our obligation to the child growing in the child's mother's womb. When we look to scripture, we see that at least in some cases, God has a direct relationship with unborn children. And that God treats unborn children as people distinct from their mother in at least some cases. In Genesis 25, God tells Rebekah that two nations are in her womb. That's Jacob and Esau. And in Hosea 12, we're told that Jacob took hold of Esau's heel while they were still in the womb. Not one lump of something in Rebekah's tummy took hold of another lump. What? Jacob took hold of Esau's heel. Isaiah 12, 3 says this. So the scriptures are treating Jacob and Esau before they're born, as does Romans 9. Before they were born, God related to them as individuals who were distinct from their mother. Mm-hmm. Samson was a Nazarite from the womb. So from before he was born, he was set apart by God in this uh, particular vow-holding way. In Psalm 139, David in the midst of praising God's nearness to him all the time, includes God being near to him when he, David, was being formed in his mother's womb. It wasn't that God was close to his mother. Right. It was that God was close to David, who wasn't yet born. In Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah is told that God knew him before God formed him in his mother's womb. And it has to be before God finished forming him in his mother's womb. Uh, so God has a relationship with Jeremiah that he was set apart to be a prophet before mm-hmm. he was born. Right. In Isaiah 46, 3, God says of Israel that they were the object of God's care before they were born. The whole nation. This is not, you know, uh, individual four or five exotic cases. It's right. all of Israel. But of course, the most striking of all the examples is uh, John the baptizer, Elizabeth 
carries John, and we're told that John was filled from the Holy Spirit, uh, even from his mother's womb. That's Luke 1.15. And then in Luke 1.39-45, sometime after Elizabeth is six months pregnant, so between six and eight months pregnant, she goes to visit her cousin Mary, and John leaps in Elizabeth's womb when he hears Mary's voice. So this is John, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizing the mother of Jesus. Hmm. It wasn't Elizabeth leaping for joy. It was John leaping for joy. Hmm. So these are all cases where the scriptures, and there's not um, extra stuff added to say, like, whatever you do, don't don't infer from this that unborn children aren't people. (laughs) Right. It takes for granted throughout all of this that unborn children aren't are children. Yeah. Um, uh, we also see this evident in Exodus 21. We have the law. It's the application of the sixth commandment against murder right. to the life of Israel. And it says, if two men are fighting and not intending to hit a pregnant woman, but they do as part of their fight, a pregnant woman is struck by the men and she gives birth And then the passage is very difficult. It says, if there's no harm, no problem. Like, no harm to whom? Well, but if there is harm, and it must be to the child, the payment will be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That the child who was in the pregnant woman, if it's injured by these men, even though they didn't set out to injure the child, the law requires the same punishment that it would have given for the, the men if the child had been fully grown or fully yeah. grown. Yeah. So uh, takes for granted that the unborn child is distinct from its mother mm. and an object of legal regard. Um, and then the last thing to say about what the scriptures say about unborn children is that in, when the prophets in second Kings eight and 15 and Hosea 13 and Amos one, when the prophets are describing how you will know that God's judgment is coming and great evils will befall Israelites because of their faithlessness. Among the evils that will be evident is the armies coming in judgment will rip open pregnant women. Mm. And so the great evil there is the killing of the woman's child. Yeah. And it's a great evil. It's along with killing young men and killing children, you have ripping pregnant women open. Mm-hmm. which takes for granted that the great evil is taking the life of the unborn child. So God has a relationship with at least some. And if you're wondering, well, maybe not all. Well, the only way that it would be faithful to Scripture to think that maybe these are rare cases, that even though it's all children who are killed by invading forces are killed wrongly, um, Because God sets such a high value on human life, we're going to need really clear instructions lest we treat as cheap what God treats as valuable. And so a high level of care is needed when we think about what exactly is our obligation to unborn children. Uh, We have good scriptural reason for believing that God has a relationship with many, if not all, Let's go with all as being 
appropriately safe given the value that God puts on all human life. And just as the last thing, if I were still wavering, in Psalm 51.5, David says that in sin did my mother conceive me. And because David is the legitimate son of Jesse, it can't be that David's mother was sinning when she conceived him. David is not talking about his mother's sin. He's talking about his own sin. And so from conception, he was guilty because of Adam's sin. Yeah. That means that the only time the scripture talks about where we might look to decide when a human life as a distinct thing begins in the process of development in a woman's womb, the only time it talks about it is with regards to conception. And so... I think if you're attending to scripture saying, what is God's heart with regards to unborn children? All of the information is on the side of those are children that I value and that you should protect. There are no indications that God has any other opinion. So you're going to have to find a reason to set aside all of those indicators and then pretend that the Bible is silent. The best you're going to get is the Bible just doesn't say anything, so we can do as we please. No, the Bible says things, so we, people who are serious about conforming what they want to what the scriptures call us to, uh, will seek to protect the lives of unborn children. There's been, and I think you've said it within the last hundred years or so, the value of life has been devalued. What you've just described from a, a Judeo-Christian worldview, mm-hmm. that has become less and less prevalent in society. Right. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what are those key contributors that are leading to the devaluing of the unborn? Well, specifically on the devaluing of the unborn is children are costly. Right. They cost money. They cost time and attention, and there's all sorts of things that you just can't attempt. If you're a parent and you're a responsible parent, there's a lot of things that you're giving up in order to have children. And selfish people don't like having things getting in the way of doing what they want to do. Some people now are solving that problem by resolving never to have children, taking either permanent steps or dramatic steps to so limit the likelihood that they, because they know that children will just get in the way of living what they conceive of as their best life. Yeah. They're wrong about that. I have four children of my own. They were enormously inconvenient and uh, no, really enormously inconvenient, (laughs) but we'll make uh, sure that they, my life would be so impoverished without them. Right. It's really hard to imagine life being a tenth as good without my children, even taking all the inconveniences and expenses into account. Right. So um, I do understand that there are people whose life circumstances are such that having a child is unimaginably difficult. Um, All I can say is uh, I thought so too. Regularly, when you have children, you say, why exactly did we think this was a good idea? But those are moments when you take account of the whole, it's way, way, way worth it. I don't think there's anyone who would argue that the Western world has become increasingly selfish over the last hundred years. 
we now think that the single most important thing in the world is my autonomy, mm. that no one should get in the way of me defining my life the way I want to define it. And anybody who would stand in the way of me realizing exactly the life I've imagined is a hater. And uh, we could trace that back to, I don't think Nietzsche invents it. I think he gives it a particularly, um, what do I want to say, pungent defense. <laughs> it's memorably clear and and makes of hating the single greatest crime. Mm. And that anyone who wants to tell you that you're doing something that displeases God and is bad for you, hates you. And so uh, society has mostly adopted that position that anyone who gets in the way of you setting the agenda for your life on your terms, according to your wisdom, well, there should be laws to keep them from doing that. (laughs) And the law should do all it can to get out of your way. If it's just going to affect you, there shouldn't be a law against it, which is why it's super important that the unborn child not count as a person. Because if you concede that it's a person, it kind of looks like there needs to be some attempt to take the other person's needs, value into account. Right. Because they have autonomy as well. Right. If you concede that they're persons. Even the inborn desire to have children, men and women, Mm -hmm. I guess we're seeing that less and less. Yeah. Well, fertility rates across the globe are falling. Right. And except in the Islamic communities. Well, even there, my understanding is even there, they're falling. They're just at not the same rate. Yeah, sure. Cratering. They're greater than 2.1. So their population will grow over time. But most of the industrialized world uh, is now under 2.1 and in some cases under one under one birth per fertile woman Uh, and that means you're going to shrink and you're going to have mushrooming problems with caring for people who are no longer able to care for themselves because there won't be the children there to care for them but if everybody was maximally selfish, it wouldn't matter how many children there were, were there. They wouldn't care for their parents anyway. Right. <laughs> and parents would be offering their children up to Moloch or something. Yeah. So in the case of the offering children up to Moloch is, I mean, part of what's so horrifically, obviously horrifically bad about that is that terror about an idol brought them to the place where they would give up something they treasured more than anything else on earth. It wasn't just that they had too low a view of children. It's that they were utterly terrified by the idol who was demanding the child of them. Um, It's part of what makes Yahweh so wonderful. God did not demand that. God didn't demand the death of any children. He demanded that the firstborn child would be dedicated to him. I'm a firstborn So my life should be dedicated to the Lord, but it's my life. I'm alive. (laughs) I wasn't handed over to an idol that demanded this, this kind of display of abject submission. I think culturally there was a desire on the part of both men and women to procreate, have children. Mm -hmm. Families were much larger. 
we've obviously talked about this in a sort of Western mindset of towards the self selfish. Uh, are there other factors that are, are contributing towards this regression in some sense? So one of the reasons for having many children, it was almost a certainty that some percentage of them would die before they reached adulthood. And if they were going to contribute to the maintenance of the family, both to carry on the family name, which was a much bigger deal in history. Our sense of solidarity with our ancestors and um, our finding our identity in our family, that's waning, maybe not completely, but close to waning. It sort of depends on the culture. Yes. Asian cultures, African cultures still retain a pretty significant a sense of obligation to uh, not just living ancestors, but the family name and the project that was the, their family. And Europeans, for the most part, have lost that. Europeans and Americans have lost that, apart from some ethnic communities that do a good job of celebrating the accomplishments and jealously guarding, in, in an appropriate sense of jealousy, uh, being appropriately proud of what your family has stood for. Um, I got a little bit of that from my dad who was Welsh. I think it's important that I'm Welsh and you did too. You got a bit of that. It's not irrelevant to you that you're of Egyptian heritage that matters to you, but it's less and less true. And it's less and less common for people to think that they need to have children who will carry on the family name and project. That's sociological change. And there's also affluence has brought with it the increasing sense that I'm going to save enough money that I will not need to depend on my children to take care of me. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in fact, now if, if you end up depending on your children, it's thought of as a life failing. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't until fairly recently Mostly everybody expected that they would reach a point where they were not strong enough to contribute to the family's material needs, but what you provided was wisdom and they cherished you and you all lived in the same house and they cared, you cared for each other. And the old person's contribution was the thing that the young people couldn't do. And that was be wise. (laughs) We are now a culture who has mostly only contempt for the old. We don't see years and, you know, long life and experience, uh, because there's a YouTube video that will tell you how to do everything you need to know. Right. You don't need grandpa to show you how to fix your lawnmower. You just watch YouTube. Yeah. So the, the devaluing of the wisdom of the older generation, that has not all happened since YouTube came, you know, it was invented in the mid two thousands. It's been a slowish process of favoring the insights of the young over the experience of the old. But that also goes with not seeing a need to perpetuate the family as a thing, you know, something to be cherished. There's a hyper individualism that sort of marks out the most recent sort of two, three, four generations. Yes. And we've also accepted models uh, for good or for real. You have to remember that Taking a long view, I don't think things get much better or worse until Jesus returns, and then they'll get really good really fast. And so when I talk about a time 150 years ago when you didn't look to the government 
to care for you when you were sick or unemployed. You look to your family. You look to the community, but especially to your family. And we have replaced, the government has stepped in, in part because the church stopped. Yes. For good or for ill. No, mostly ill. (laughs) The church stopped being the organization that would step in and say, in the absence of a family or a community, we are your community. We will care for you. The monastery was the hospital. The monastery was the hotel when people came from out of town. It was the place to get educated. And the church doesn't do those things. And so the government stepped in. And now we don't need family or church because we have the government. Yeah. Which is the very source of what we're talking about right now. Right. right. The Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are legal issues that are defined by the government. Right. And that's where we are today. And that's why this issue is of such importance to people. It has been defined by, uh, however, I don't remember how many justices voted for Roe versus Wade, but it was defined by seven, the, seven to two. It was defined by seven justices in the 1970s. Right. Christians have tried to navigate that. And, and as well, I mean, really the whole nation has navigated that through these last 50 years. And uh, so, I mean, just in terms of from an ethical, moral standpoint, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what you've just sort of unearthed here, which sure. is the concept of the church has not been what it was intended to be in terms of care for the elderly, the widow, the orphan, and government has stepped in to what the two institutions that God has given us, the family and the church. Is this just a natural decline that you would expect when a government steps in and and takes over those roles that the church and the family should be doing? Well, right. So here I have to draw a distinction. There are governments that do it. There are things, we call them democracies, but of course ours is a representative republic where the government is significantly an expression of the will of the people. And I think that's what we mostly have is we mostly have laws that capture what we want the government doing. Right. And let's just take the way the church handled unmarried women who were pregnant. Did we handle that well? No. No, it was because it was a source of great shame for everybody involved. Often the church just wanted it to disappear, like just go somewhere else. Um, So the church wasn't encouraging unwed mothers to have abortions, but they were encouraging them to disappear. (laughs) And uh, if there wasn't a family member in a distant city where you could go and just be out of sight, then kind of hoping that the government would take care of them. So increasingly, as the government made services available, the church could just step away and not care. And that's when you when you listen to thoughtful, I think wrong, but still thoughtful pro-choice people, they say Christians are, say they're pro-life, but they're only for convenient life. And once the child's born, the church doesn't do much. This is less true now. But in the 70s, when the Christians were unhappy about Roe versus Wade, the, it was sadly correct that the churches were not stepping up to help 
take care of mothers and their newborn babies or mothers who needed prenatal vitamins because they were carrying their child or mothers needed a place to live because they'd been kicked out of their house by parents who were ashamed of them. The church didn't do a very good job. And this is some of the argumentation that has come from the pro-choice yeah. side. Yes. Um, and mostly, often, complaints about the way Christians behaved are just true. And we have to acknowledge that but our sinfulness doesn't make more sinfulness the solution. Right. Uh, but it is a reason to lament, and it is a reason to confess. We allowed other people to take care of this and left unwed mothers without love and support that they should have gotten from us. And it's the church has gotten much better about this, for what it's worth. Um, I don't know that it's common that unwed pregnant women are comfortable going to church at your church or my church. But it's more likely than right. it was. And it yes, ought to get right. more likely, especially if we're excited about the life that they're carrying. We would like for them. We certainly don't want the child to be a victim because people did sinful and foolish things. Right. So I think we just have to fess up that for too long, we treated pregnant women as a problem and then told them, by the way, you can't solve that problem by ending the pregnancy. <laughs> now, we're not going to help you. We just know what you can't do. Yeah. And that, um, it's yeah. reasonable for people to think that that was sort of hard hearted. Right. It doesn't make the killing of the unborn child biblically okay, but it is a reason for us to be repenting of heartlessness and zealous not to be like that again with any woman who uh, is carrying a child and could use our help, not just is asking for it. We should be looking to help people who are carrying children. And again, we don't want to assume anything, but should these be overruled, overturned, Right. the church needs to be ready and willing and able to now step into those situations, right? So it's the ruling that the that Christians have wanted for 50 some odd years has now come. Right. Again, well, maybe this, right. Looks like, right. It will. yes, we're, we're speaking in the hypothetical here, right. But it comes now you need to have an actual biblical response to people that are facing, you know, life altering events. Yeah. Right. Somebody shows up in your door. They are dying of an, an obstructed airway. And the reason they're dying is because they had been smoking cigarettes for years. Yeah. Are you going to say, hey, wait a minute. Look, you smoke cigarettes. You deserve to die. Wag the no. finger. <laughs> you're right. going to help them. Yeah. Um, you're going to help them. And then and then maybe at some point you'll talk about whether smoking cigarettes is a great idea going forward. But you're not saying you've made life choices that make you unworthy of my help. I'm pretty sure that in the story of the Good Samaritan, the exactly Samaritan doesn't ask, what exactly did you do to bring this upon yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's in need and Jesus condemns the religious people who walk on the past. other side of the road. Yeah. yeah. And it, we're not even told they inquired and found out that actually he didn't deserve the man who was uh, beaten and robbed didn't deserve their help. They just didn't want to help. So no, we should be looking to help. And in this, especially in States that are going to make it something like impossible to get a legal abortion the church should be falling all over itself 
making it obvious where people can go to help if they find themselves pregnant and they, they are just scared or they want a friend. They want someone to walk alongside them who knows how hard it's going to be and who will be telling them daily what a wonderful thing it is they're doing to care for this child. Uh, so we should be ready to do that. Not ready with brass bands playing. We are a righteous state who outlaws abortion. Uh, other people can worry about that. We should be immediately on top of it with here are the services that yeah. are now we are organized yeah. uh, and maybe organized. Yeah. Be practical, yeah. not uh, gloat. And let's suppose that Church of the Apostles anticipated the ruling coming down at the end of June or beginning of July, overturning and there Georgia has laws that will make it illegal to have an abortion in the state of Georgia sometime in July, if this decision had not been leaked and this was the one that came out at the beginning of July, that sometime in the middle of the July, there would be women in Atlanta who were discovering that they were pregnant, utterly horrified by the prospect, partly because the culture has taught them that children are not worth it and they have no idea what to do. But what if apostles already had a hotline you could call saying, scared, confused, yeah, we want to walk yeah. through this with you, not because we're going to drive you to a state that will allow you to get an abortion, but because we think that this is a right, life right. that it deserves to be nurtured and we want to help. Well, so don't do it for the publicity because that story is just not going to show up on the news. What will show up on the news is the hateful churches that are celebrating all the women whose lives are now going to be much more difficult because the law was changed. That's what will be on the news, mm. but we're not doing yeah. it for the sake of the coverage or to score points, we're doing it because they're going to be hurting people who need help, like the man on his way down from Jerusalem. Let's, for a minute, just consider and think about let the ethical, the philosophical argument that was contributing towards the mindset that led towards Roe v. Wade. So I, I think it's important that we be thinking about from the other yeah. side of the aisle, from the other side of the perspective, however you want to phrase that, it's helpful to see that argumentation mm -hmm. to have a, a better understanding of, of where that's coming from. So uh, this is Judith Jarvis Thompson's. No, it came out in Philosophy and Public Affairs, Volume 1, Number 1, 1971, Fall 1971. So it's before Roe versus Wade. And uh, the title of it is A Defense of Abortion. I don't think I've seen an anthology of the most important things in bioethics in the last 50 years that did not include this argument, this piece. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the most anthologized piece in all of bioethics. And the third paragraph says, I propose then that we grant that the fetus is a person from the moment of conception. How does the argument go from here? Something like this, I take it. Every person has a right to life, so the fetus has a right to life. No doubt the mother has a right to decide what shall happen in and to her body. Everyone would grant that. But surely a person's right to life is stronger and more stringent than the mother's right to decide what happens in and to her body. So the fetus may not be killed and abortion may not be performed. That's how the argument's supposed to go. I think the biblical argument is a lot stronger than that because of God's regard. It's not just that there's an abstract right to life. It's that we're pitting an abstract right to life against an abstract right to do what you want with your body. It's, yeah, you're messing with what God values, not what we value, and that makes it different. But 
She goes on. It sounds plausible, but now let me ask you to imagine this. You wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment, and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you, and last night the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. The director of the hospital now tells you, look, we're sorry the Society of Music Lovers did this to you. We would never have permitted it if we had known, but still they did it, and the violinist is now plugged into you. To unplug you would be to kill him, but never mind, it's only for nine months. Okay. So this is now the story of the unconscious violinist is thought to be the strongest argument in favor of abortion being permissible. That because you didn't ask for it, she goes on to argue, it would be noble for you to give nine months of your life to keep this violinist alive, but you're not obligated. And that's the point. You're not obligated. Yeah. So here's one of the reasons this argument is so powerful. What God values is not in the argument. It pits right. a violinist's goals and life projects against yours. And if that's all you got to think about, okay, maybe. Maybe there wouldn't be. But we know more than that. It wasn't a group of music lovers illegally kidnapped you, drugged you, and strapped him. Very different story. When a woman is carrying a child, significantly, the child was put there by God. This argument is so powerful because it, it is given to people who have lost the ability to take what God values and what God does into account. But if you try to bring God into account, and if you're like me and you're male, then if you're talking to a thoughtful pro-choice woman... She's going to say, that's convenient and easy for you to do because you're never going to face this. You are not going to wake up with somebody strapped to your body so that your life for the next nine months and really longer than that, actually, uh, but at least the next nine months are forfeit to this other person. And to which I can only say, true. I do not know what it's like to face that prospect. But I do know what God's word says about what God values. And it wasn't an illegal act that strapped you to that child. You've got a life that God values very, very greatly. And since our lives do not belong to us, what we want to do is to protect and nurture all those that God has set apart as image bearers. And so the obligation is to care for the child. And I want to help you as much as I can. Here's what the men can do. They can say, please, insofar as I can possibly help you carry this burden, let me help. Not, well, the sisterhood will take care of you. Uh, men haven't been very good about that, either inside or outside the church. And they are participants in the very same. Um what do you say, though? I mean, that relies heavily on a Christian mm -hmm. worldview being, for lack of a better word, imposed on a culture. So here I want to separate. Let's, let's first answer the question, sure. what do we know is God's revealed will for how we will live? Right? And insofar as it's up to us, we're going to live that way. 
We're going to value every life, whether born or not. We're going to care for the women who are doing the, the work of bringing that life forth. We're going to do that. We know that that's God's design for us. It's a separable, not always separate, but at least separable question. What do we ask the law to do? Because we could say, uh, maybe we should work to have the law realize all of that, that insofar as the biological father can contribute to bearing the burden for the raising of the child, the biological father should. We don't do that. I don't know of any, I don't know of any political action committee seeking to have the law right. require biological fathers to cover all the costs. Well, in fact, in some ways they're disincentivized. Right. So we have, we have to... perverse incentives in the law that make it right. better for everybody, uh, financially at least, make it better for everybody for the father not to be known. And those aren't very sensible laws relative to what God values. So there's a whole mare's nest of legal difficulties that we have adopted in part because we want to hand over to the state things that it really would be much more efficient for families and churches to do. And the argument for turning it over to the state is that there are lots of irresponsible families and even irresponsible churches. So that's not a bad argument either. If what you care about is the people who are going to be hurt by the system, it would be better if the church got much, much better at forming families that took responsibility and that the church stepped in when families were irresponsible. But until that happens, I think it's kind of cruel for the church people to insist that the government get out of it in the hopes that who will step in. So that's all very complicated. I'm happy hmm. if it turns out that Roe and Casey are overturned. I think that it's more likely that people will be discouraged from discontinuing lives that God values and that, that their lives will be better. They don't, they won't think so. Not just the children, but the mother's lives will be better if they carry their children, even though it wasn't what they thought they wanted. So I think that overturning those laws will make better decisions more likely, but boy, is it an opportunity for the church to step up and provide what other people probably won't. Yeah. Well, we have a lot ahead of us and um, we are certainly praying for particular ends and results. Uh, but I think this is a helpful conversation that we've been having and certainly one that hopes that churches are thinking thoughtfully, biblically, lovingly about the many women who will, yeah. who will face this men and women and being willing to, just as the Good Samaritan did, step in and help bear the costs of what yeah. will come from that. And uh, that's certainly our hope, because that makes for yeah. a better society in so many ways, in so many ways. And it's also doing what Jesus left us to do. That's part of the advancing of Jesus's kingdom in the world, is to see the poor cared for, the vulnerable, sort of hard to think of more vulnerable people than unborn children and mothers who find it to be a great burden to be nurturing the child. Those are vulnerable people. Jesus would have us looking for ways to help the vulnerable. So we should be doing that.
before we go, is there anything else you can think of? Uh, just one last word, and that is the, the especially if uh, I'm 62 years old, I don't remember the announcement that I was 13, I think, when Roe v. Wade was handed down January of 1973. So um, but I do remember it being something that was shocking to everyone. And I've spent almost 50 years now working to discourage people from making the mistake of having an abortion. I have an article published that was arguing that the law should permit pro-life people to gather on the property of abortion clinics to talk with women who were seeking abortions. So I've been working for pro-life causes my whole life, and I've always thought that the overturning of Roe would be a very good thing. I still do. But it is no reason to be popping champagne corks and spiking the football in front of your pro-choice friends. Because if all it was for you was political or about your team finally winning, this is not, probably not a token of some grand reversal of the country's slide into selfishness. It probably isn't. I think it's a mistake to see it as a piece of a grand military campaign. If it turns out that Roe is overturned, then I think that it's going to become an existential issue in 50 states, all somewhat different in some way. And you could pour all of your energy into making sure that the laws in your state were as harsh as can be imagined, or you could pour your energy into being there to help women who are going to be affected by this change in the law. And really, if you have to pick, go help hurting people. That's what we were called to do. Winning a political fight or making sure that the law is harsh. I don't think that's our primary responsibility as Jesus's followers. It's really hard to find anybody in the New Testament saying, here's what we need to do. Uh, we need to get a hold of the levers of power in the Roman Empire and punish everybody who's persecuted us. No, I'm, no. <laughs> There's nobody in the New Testament talking like that. So I think our mandate is to help people who are in need right now. And those are going to be pregnant women and the children that they're carrying. Well, a good final word and encouragement to us as we consider what could be. Uh, again, we don't want to presume on this, but um, certainly, again, prayers towards these efforts and uh, prayers that churches would see themselves as a, an integral part of the next steps, again, if this is to come about the way the draft seems to look. And so I will say thank you, Dr. Bill Davis, once again for taking time to come and uh, be on Candid Conversations with us. Thanks, Jonathan. It's always fun to talk to you. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.